Exposing the truths of everyday people who are willing to enter the beautiful mess of foster care and adoption. We're glad you're here. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to What They're Worth, episode 23. We made it this far. We have. And I keep saying that because I can't believe we just keep going at this. I don't know. (laughs) I didn't think we would. That's true. (laughs) And we keep also having firsts. So we're excited today because today our guest is Michelle Batten. And she is going to share her perspective of being a sibling of um, foster siblings and adoptive siblings. And she has taken her life experiences and channeled that into what she is now doing, being a TBRI educator and parent coach, as well as being a safe and sound protocol practitioner. So without further ado, Michelle, tell us about you and your story. Sure thing. Thanks for having me. So I grew up in a home um, with foster siblings and an adopted sister. Uh, My foster siblings are... It was in the 70s, 80s, so rules were a little different. So some uh, foster kids could stay with you for a long time, long periods of time. Some kids were there short enough that it was just one night. I remember one little girl, the child I learned the word kleptomaniac from, <laughs> because she stole my brother's hot meal. And um, I remember um, the, the one um, boy who stayed with us a long time. He was there almost six years. So, and he would come back and forth, bounce back and forth. His sibling, his sister also lived with us for a little bit. My mom was able to mentor his dad and would attend school meetings because his dad wasn't able to read. And so able to, a closer family relationship with with them, um, but not someone we were able to keep in touch with. I have another foster sister who um, lived with us when just before she was aging out of the system, but it was she turned 18 during her senior year. And but she grew up in her kids called my mom and dad, grandma and grandma. So close relationship there. My sister came to us at 11 months of age. And um, my parents at that point were told a good education, a loving home and a Christian community should be enough to seal the deal and everything would be fine. She'd be normal. She was 11 months old. But that wasn't the story that played out for her. And so she had a lot of extreme behavior growing up. There's a lot of um, stuff going on. And uh, I always wondered what was different about her or what was um, the truth about her that unfolded differently than a lot of other kids. But even why in a house where she grew up, I mean, she's my earliest memory. I don't remember her being anything but my sister. So why, what was it that made her so different? So um, I went into studying child development and learned a lot about preventing trauma. That was my original work. And then about, oh, I think it was probably eight years ago. Oh, there's a big chunk I just left out <laughs> of the story, but of, of my years of working with children, but about eight years ago, I was in a church community with um, about 2,000 people, but 30 of the families were fostering and adopting, and I looked around and went, oh my, because I knew that the culture to parent behavior wasn't going to work, and in the future, we could end up with families who had kids in their youth group with extreme behaviors, and what were we going to do then? And what would we do when we had parents whose marriages were on the rocks because the behaviors were so much in their house mm-hmm. and that there was no place to turn and that the church should be a place where um, there was safety? And I didn't I didn't know how that would be because I didn't have that. And while I believed in hope and healing, I sure didn't see that play out in my system. So um, I found TBRI through a friend who was parenting an adoptive teenager and she introduced me to trust-based relational intervention and the families there sent me to texas to learn about tbri and while i was um, discovering what tbri was 
and building a ministry in the state of Idaho that started involving people who, who wanted to join us at our ministry. And eventually that grew out of the church because, of course, the church families did hit the crisis point. And those families couldn't come. And my business grew out of this um, passion to help families, this passion to walk alongside them in that journey and find hope and healing. And tools, practical tools that they could bring into their home um, to bring calm and healing to those spaces. So story of growing up. So just to break it down a little bit. So yeah. how old were you when foster care and adoption came into your life? And then how many other siblings were in the home as ah, biological siblings? Yeah, good question. Um, so my sister arrived when I was almost three. She was 11 months. Um, we're 20, 23 months apart. Um, so she's really my earliest memory. I remember the social worker taking her back and forth. Again, the rules were different. So she was able to have visitation for two years with her family. And then once my parents advocated that there were was a lot of developmental regression, there was another two years until rights were terminated. So she wasn't she was five by the time she was adopted. Um, I had other foster siblings until she was probably a teenager. Mm-hmm. After that, and then there was enough crazy in our home that we needed to, my parents decided mm-hmm. to slow that down and focus on my sister's needs. So Okay. And um, do you have any other biological? Yeah. I forgot that question. Um, yes, I have a brother and a sister biologically who are older than her. Oh, younger than her. Okay, you're the oldest. Okay. So, because a lot of people, this is a question I feel like we get a lot and I hear in the community is like, should I wait for my kids to be older before I introduce foster care and adoption? How will it impact my kids? You know, because we know that a lot of kids do have special needs, whether they're behavioral, emotional, of course, because they've experienced trauma, even right. in the best of circumstances. Right. How's that going to affect my kids? And should I introduce something or someone that could cause damage? So that's or why even I was, like, yeah. even like what order, like right, people right. really hung up on like a sp- yeah. an order, like should I have my own kids first, biological, and then adopt? Should I adopt and then have biological children? People get really... Like they want an answer of what, you know, we know that doesn't really exist, but. Um, because here's the thing is 22 years into biological parenting, there's not answers. Yeah. <laughs> it's all fake, but they don't do their work. Um, there, are, there is healing and hope and a journey though, right? And so that's what we can offer both our, our kids that we're raising long-term and the kids that we're inviting into our home short-term. Um, so my Two biological siblings have a different story than I do about foster care, and so that's theirs to tell. My, my, I think that I probably, my sister and I were close when we were little. When we were older, we fought a lot um, for a lot of different reasons. And um, I think that's the, the thing I wish that I understood, and I don't, I don't know if I had the capacity for this, but I wish I had understood, like, that the hurts that she was carrying, right? The, what I say is the, um, the lie whispered to her soul of neglect that she just wasn't worth it, right? And that's what carried through her whole life. Um, but I don't know that there's a right answer to that. Like, I mean, that's like trying to decide if you should have your kids close, should you space on six years? Should, if you're gonna get to choose biologically and do it that way, right? Like, there's not, I don't think there's a right answer. And I think when we're called into the space of fostering adoption, um, we get to make it our own in that. And But we get to, when we recognize that there's hurt behind that, and we bring tools into our house that promote healing, then we can come alongside our own kids too, right? And give them those same tools that we're giving our foster children or adopted mm-hmm. children, right? Was that a conversation that your parents had with you? Or do you feel like your parents didn't really understand? 
because they were kind of given that promise, which a lot of people still get that, yes. oh, just, just get them young. And if you get them young, then, Ooh. oh, it's the teenagers that are going to give you the problems. You know, you kind of get those messages. So do you feel like your parents were able to kind of say to you, hey, your sister's hurting. She has these things going on. You know, none of us can understand. Or was that not? That, that wasn't even in the framework at that point. The idea, mm-hmm. um, like, if you start looking at when, you know, advocacy for attachment and, I mean, attachment theory has been around a long time, but it worked its way into the foster system, right? And research, brain work, those types of pieces that we look at now to help kids, um, those, that wasn't there then. And my, that mm-hmm. promise that, that, um, that she would be fine in the end, just if they parented her just like any any of the other kids. And and to be fair, I mean, some of the kids did come out okay, right? Like by measures of whatever okay is, right? Functional <laughs> citizens, right? And and to be fair, that's what um, they were promised. But interesting, and I think this is something that we're delivered all the time too. Still, is that um, she wasn't choosing it. She wasn't choosing healing. She wasn't choosing to get better. So, and yet, um, who does choose that when they they don't believe they're worth it? Who does choose that Mm -hmm. when you don't have to, that's not a solely adoption or foster story, right? Of people who don't believe they're worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. So would you say, like, do you feel like that would have helped, you know, because... I, you know, I'm sure plenty of people find themselves in that situation where, and you know, I'm a therapist. I read all the books and I was still unprepared for what I was going to deal with in my home. Mm -hmm. But I think it's comforting to know that you can at least have some level of influence um, that you can prepare the other kids in the home, whether they're foster adopt or biological. Still, I mean, like you said, some kids are going to have different and more severe. So, I mean, do you feel like the way that a parent approaches the other children can help with the impact? I I do because, well, one of the ways I look at when I help a person, a kid, a parent, a, a person, when I come alongside them, I often think, how am I like this? How am I checking out? you know, for severe mental health issues where there's completely checking out. How, how do I just check out in life? And how am I like that? How am I, you know, how am I allowing intrusive thoughts to, to direct my path? For, and I might not be, you know, struggling with mental health issues with intrusive thoughts, but I can, I can relate in that way, right? So if we can teach our kids that we're all messy and that there's this place of healing, does that mean that... Um, hurt it doesn't hurt right like if we it's gonna it it does hurt it is messy and I think to tell foster and adoptive parents that um it isn't messy is is such false it's not fair right because then it it becomes the very thing that got me into this of like the silence right the I have to isolate and there's no help out there it's it's me it's my parenting it's my or I quit I can't do it Right, and either of those don't have to be the truth. Um, building up a community around us and finding resources uh, can provide hope and healing for for any kiddo, right? And and there is this level of the the truth is is there is this level of I don't call it secondary trauma. It doesn't always have to be that, right? But there is hurt and stuff that comes along with living with other people who have hard stuff. Yeah. So that has to be acknowledged while still saying that doesn't mean that you shouldn't invite that in your house when there's good outcomes. Because my parents didn't know that. And and having the tools now to work through my story, I love what I'm doing, right? Like this, this it did greatly influence me, but I hope for good of getting to help family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the hardest part about it when you were growing up? You know, my sister, I that part of my sister and I not getting along. I look back at that now and just 
so I wish I could have understood her better um, mm. and understood her her story and her and, and what was going on. Um, I was the oldest, so I didn't have to do as much sharing of space and bedrooms and things like that with foster siblings. So, um, you know, we'd be shuffled around maybe, but it would for the short term once at night or it, I didn't ever have to, to share space that my brother did or things like that. So mm -hmm. um, I think the relational side of my sister long term was was a hard thing. And even my like the foster sister who we still keep in touch with, um, I don't remember there being I'm sure there was, I should ask her this, but um, tension, right? Like the, I remember her showing me her cassette tapes and teaching me about her teenage stuff. I was only like 12 when she was 18. Mm -hmm. and so like, I remember these, these things, but I don't remember her cooking shepherd pie, but I don't remember like hard tensions. But again, I didn't have to share my space and my, those things. So there's an example of an older child coming into our house and Disrupting birth order, as they say. <laughs> mm -hmm. What about, like, on, other than, like, you deciding to do it for your future, what, do you feel like it helped you at all to grow as a kid? Like, did it humble you, or did it make you aware of mm -hmm. the world? Like, I think about that, too. And that's what some people talk about, the benefits being. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it, it made me into, my it made me into a person who desires to help people and can see the hurts. Mm -hmm. um, it, I grew up with a mom who, who, and my dad who um, was always helping kids. So that, you know, that, that was always in my field of vision of how to help. Yeah. I think it just mostly gave me that compassion and being able to see um, hurting kids. I remember, uh, one of our foster siblings coming and sitting in the garage and my mom could not get him to come in for dinner and I went out to talk to him and it turned out somebody had told him that foster children are tied up with chains and so he shouldn't go into my parents house right like and to have those stories in your head and realize that there's something else other than the for me like middle class white growing up experience right and um, that that was a really good thing for me, that was a really good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like it came down to like teaching you a bit about empathy. I think it And was. I think that's such a, I mean, everybody talks now about how that's missing from a lot of people. And mm -hmm. I don't really know a better way, one of the better ways to show some, like our children empathy besides I mean, it's sacrificial, right? It's mm -hmm. it's a sacrifice for everybody in the house to have another child come in, whether they're the best behaved child or the most difficult. Um, it takes sacrifice from everybody, including the children. It, it takes sacrifice from, you know, their attention, um, the parents' attention from them and maybe their space and maybe other things, yeah. you know, that are more drastic. But um, it comes to mind that... Um like, like being able to teach that empathy and be able to enter into someone else's hurt, but also for a parent, I think the hope comes for our kids who are already in the house before before the hurting kid enters is being able to say to them um, that that you see their pain too, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's, if someone could can recognize, and this is again, like I like to think, how does this how does this play out for me? If someone can recognize the person who hurts me pain and help me to have empathy for that person, but also recognize that I was hurt in the midst of that and that I'm seen too. And not like, well, don't you feel sorry for them? Right. Suck mm -hmm. it up. Sorry if that's mm -hmm. not a word you use on your podcast. But right, like if we if we don't just say that to our kids, but like, wow, that does hurt. And wow, I wonder what someone who would hit you like that would feel would feel to hurt you that badly, right? So mm -hmm. both gaining that empathy while empathizing for them. Yeah. That's a good point. I, w I was going to ask kind of to that point, like, did you ever feel, I wonder about this too, did you ever feel jealous of mm -hmm. the attention or the problems that were going on with 
your other siblings? Yes, my sister. I remember, it's, it's funny, too, because the attention she got wasn't positive, right? right. But I remember standing in my, if my mom hears this podcast, she'll, she'll laugh. I remember standing in my mom's kitchen, and I had to be junior high, and saying to her, I can't believe you're buying her another coat. She's lost, like, three coats this year, and you're buying her, like, this really nice winter coat. And my mom... I don't know what she said, but I just remember that being one of the first real experiences, um, at least as an adolescent of jealousy. Mm-hmm. I was getting a coat for Christmas, too, so my mom didn't even say anything. So Christmas, <laughs> I opened it up and was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, just the feeling of like, oh, I, I'm seeing my, my, my needs are being overlooked. But So, yes, like that, that feeling is... but. But it was understandable that I had that feeling and it was wrong that I, both those things are true, right? And mm-hmm. so helping our kids see that that it's not okay, but it's understandable you feel that way. It must feel like they're getting a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. I do have to take extra time when when the rage lasts three hours or whatever that is, right? At 15 minutes. I do have to take extra 15 minutes to explain their schoolwork because they they have different needs than you do. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think whenever we talk about the hard stuff of foster care and adoption, which we talk about a lot because there's a lot of hard stuff, the tendency for a lot of people is like, oh, well, good. Yep. Can't do it. You know, <laughs> my kid's going to be jealous. Can't do it. And I really like what you said about helping our kids accept the reality that loving people is messy. And I think we try too much with all of our kids, regardless of how they came to us to kind of protect and shield from some of the realities of relationships. Um, You know, I don't have any adoption in my extended family. That's, it's not something I grew up around but I can sure tell you there's relational mess (laughs) and that there are people that loving is very hard. Um, And I had to work through that, you know? And so, I mean, I know I face it with my adopted sons, you know, the messiness of our, my relationship with them and their relationship with other people in their family. And it's so easy to kind of just want to like pretend it's not there or just like ignore it you know, or minim- or even to minimize it. Um, but I think it's healthy as much as it's hard. It's healthy for them to see it and to be able to like learn. It's a realistic expectation of life that this stuff is going to happen. Um, I always tell my kids at work, because I'm a therapist, I always tell them, I mean, unless you're going to buy a private island and not interact with other humans... Like you're kind of going to need to work on this because it's going to keep coming up. Um, So I think rather than seeing it as like a trial that our children have to face, we can see it as an opportunity for them to wake up a little quicker to the way that life actually is, because this is the way life actually is. Well, it's giving them skills, right? It's giving them emotional intelligence. It's giving them um, ways to learn to navigate. Right. Yeah. You can watch all the movies about conflict or read all the books on marriage, you know, like you can, do, you can do Just all like that. like you said, you can be a therapist in this house. You can be a therapist in your house. Cry about like the poor children of the world, but like until you know them and until you interact with them, it's just not the same to you. So it's an opportunity for all of us to grow. Anytime we choose to love difficult people, yeah. whoever they are, in yeah. whatever sector they are in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anything else about your childhood? What about now? How are you and your sister now? Because I always wonder about that in time. My sister actually died um, six years ago. So, but trauma lived out. Like... Um, Messi lived out, and uh, mm. so she died at 42. 
Wow. But I mean, so messy continued, right? Trauma played out because there wasn't that. One thing that in your was, adulthood and your adulthood was there any? There was tension in our adulthood and um, distance because because there were repeated patterns of broken relationship, right? Like mm-hmm. that that cycle doesn't just stop. Um, and I would say what was amazing is while I don't feel like I got to um, resolve some things and come back completely and say, oh, I'm getting who you were or who you are. There was, I remember one one of our later conversations that I was able to say, wow, this must have been hard and to be able to connect on that level because I was just beginning to wake up to, to what was behind it all, to her life story. So um, there wasn't resolution in that we were able to fully talk about that, but there was in that for me, I feel like I could understand how her messy really did impact the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is really hard. And I think, you know, we always kind of want to hear the happy endings. Right. And the reality is they're not, there's not always a happy ending. And that's why it's so important. Number one, that we know that and that we, no, I have to tell myself this all the time that even if I do everything right, it still doesn't guarantee an outcome. It doesn't guarantee an outcome for your bio kids either if you have it. No, so, it doesn't. Right? So it that's doesn't. The thing. Any messy relationship. Any relationship. <laughs> any relationship has its messy. And so I, I just think of that and I wouldn't, I don't know anything else as the older, in my other siblings don't know anything else. Really, like, but to me, I always say, like, she arrived in a car, just like my other siblings did. My other siblings arrived in my parents' car when they came home, as the, you know, the older sibling. She arrived in a social worker's car. So in my head as a child, she wasn't, and and I know as an adoptee, like, this isn't how it really feels, right? But as the sister, she was no different. Like, I didn't, I didn't see it as any, anything else. And I remember things like um, going out to dinner at a family restaurant and the waitress looking at me going, you don't look anything like your parents, but you look just like your dad to my sister. And I remember the feeling of like, oh my gosh. And and just like everyone's shifting the subject and placing the order really quick because we need to cover that over. Like, what can you say, right? Like just one of those adoption awkward moments. But in my head, always carrying that forth of like, wow, this is what she must feel like all the time right like mm-hmm. she's she's right. the one who actually doesn't match the picture in in this typical situation I mean she had blue eyes like the rest of us and brown hair like the rest of us and, but just generally like that that comment was called out was something I remember so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have it any other way I guess is what I'm saying even though it was really messy right yeah so I think it's important that we own that walking in and have our eyes Mm -hmm. open walking in because it's very dangerous to tell yourself that you're going to secure an outcome. Mm -hmm. And if you're being told that, then please let us help you know that is not true. Um, But also I think, and I know why you do what you do, why I do what I do, why Christina does what she, why we all are here in this conversation is because we do believe we can have an influence. Yes. hopefully guiding the ship (laughs) into a more positive stream. Does it always work? Is it always effective? No, but hopefully we give it a better chance of smooth sailing. So what has been the most revolutionary thing about TBRI for you? And then what in the world is safe and sound? Cause I've never heard of that before. So TBRI I've, I love the piece of attachment. It fits in with a um, just my developmental background. Um, my studies were all in child development and human development. And um, I love TBRI because it's a developmental model and I can understand trauma through that lens. And so that's really, it fits with who I, who I am. And it fit with the idea that there is hope and healing. So those two big puzzle pieces of my life make sense with TBRI. 
Um, I love the passion of, of looking for connection and trying to understand that developmentally, looking back at an infant and saying, what do they need in order to build a relationship, a connection to calm? And looking at those needs and helping get those skills and connecting to, to children that in those ways. Um, I, the second piece is empowerment. And so I love that idea of teaching families like um, understanding what's going on in their kid. For example, if you ran to a bear in the woods, what would your reactions be? Run. Run. <laughs> and what would happen to your heart? Race. And your hands would turn sweaty, your eyes would dilate, like things that you have no control over, right? But when, we're on the, when our kids are on the playground, their hearts race, their palms sweat, their eyes dilate, their, right? Like all these same things are happening. And if we don't help them understand the difference between playground bear feelings and there's a predator in the room because they've lived with one, that's really messy. So, but wow, how, what a great thing to teach them that tool and pull that out. So that empowerment piece is looking at that internal and external and then the correction. I just think that um, I wish I had had these tools earlier in my own parenting. Um, with my third kiddo, it's not a kiddo anymore, so with <laughs> my third, um, he, I remember when he was little and I was learning about TBRI and saying, I used to send him to time out and on the stairs and then he'd fall asleep because the only reason he was being sassy was because he was tired, right? But I was acknowledging that. I was just sending him away because he was being really naughty. So anyway, so the first time I say that, pull him closer, let's help him regulate. Like the first time I say this to him, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sending you away. I'm going to have you sit here. He looks at me and goes, why do you want me around anyways? You don't even like me when I'm like this. Oh, right? Like, oh, no, right. I really was giving you that message all these years. Um, so just being able to practically help parents look at things differently is exciting. So that I think that that piece is um, a pretty neat opportunity to help parents with that. So, and then you asked about the safe and sound protocol. Um, safe and sound. I'm just telling you, I'm looking over here at my notes. Safe and Sound Protocol is a five-day listening um, protocol, and it can be broke five-hour listening. And we break it up into smaller pieces if the child or parent can't tolerate it. But the vagal nerve goes to our ear. The vagal nerve controls a lot of our body, um, internal body-to-brain experiences. So that bear in the woods that is what communicates the heart to the brain that their heart needs to start racing faster and all those those um, nervous system reactions, right? So one the vagal nerve is in the ear. And also, and so if you think about it, there's certain frequencies you hear better when there's a traumatic experience. I mean, you hear the think of like the twig snapping when you have that bear, right? Like those details and so our ear is tuned tuned differently and some of the frequencies that are tuned out are actually a human voice. So if we can retrain that ear um, and provide listening experience, a very specific listening experience, then we can calm the body down actually through the earway. And so by listening to that range in the human voice. So it's filtered music and they it's five hours of this for um, listening in, a, in, in this certain frequency and a certain pattern. And to, to hear it, it just sounds like the music is fading in and out, but it's actually, um, it's actually very specific. And uh, it's researched. Dr. Porges is the author of the polyvagal theory, and he is the um, founder of Safe and Sound Protocol, developer, co-developer. Is that why, like, when people are having a kids are having a tantrum, like human voices aren't effective? Is that part of the reason? Well, I think that that's part of the, I haven't heard it put that way, but I would say yes, right? Like that, that we tune out those, those human voices. There's certain playful engagement. We know that that's helpful. We know that, you know, um, melodic frequency is in our voice is helpful, but it's um, that, certain range of voice and I can send you guys over my flyer on that to just that you can provide that if you want to but 
that that's really a useful protocol to help families. And, and I think it's most useful if we start with the parents, right? Because when you live with, with a lot of um, crazy, right? <laughs> you live with a lot of crazy, for lack of a better word, um, it, it often heightens our own nervous system, right? We're often reactive. And so if we can calm that down, then we can be the co-regulator with, hmm. uh, for the child. And so I'm always teaching with NTBRI that, you know, we need to work on our own junk and work on our attachment and trying to give parents tools for that. But it's also hard just to calm our nervous system down and be mindful and put in practices. And um, this is one, another avenue for providing that. So. Mm-hmm. Who is that most recommended for? Um. As far as like what, like if you were, you know, if somebody was coming to you and telling you about their story, who would you be like, oh, this is a good idea for you? So I'll tell us, Safe and Sound is, um, they recommend it for sensory kids. They recommend it for ADHD. There's a lot of, a lot of those nervous system peoples <laughs> that, that this is good for. Yeah. Easily escalated yes. kids? Yes. Okay. That it's good for. But I would say that for people who have trauma, adults or kids, there needs to be, I, I work to first establish that there's a therapist for that person in case, um, because this really does, there really is evidence that this, um, especially on day three, that people become really, can become agitated, that there's more, they need a lot more sleep that day, those types of things. So I, and I like the parent to have someone who is their safe person, their secure attachment, and or their therapist um, available as if memories start surfacing or if, you know, if they mm-hmm. are processing hard things. So um, it's good for a lot of those people, but I think those people also need to have other resources and support because I'm not a mental health clinician, right. even though I... This is my passion. <laughs> so how how common or accessible is this? Um, because I've never heard of it, but I think it sounds really cool. So if somebody's listening and they're like, wow, I really think this could help my kid, how do they get to this? So my website right now has, um, uh, you can sign up and I can send you information. pretty accessible yes cool that's good I mean a lot of stuff that I hear that is kind of specialized is very expensive yes or very hard to access and you know that can be really frustrating because you know a lot of us who are in here doing this don't have a ton of extra cash um and schedules are tight so I love to hear about things that are accessible for people so I think that's really cool um, I'll definitely be looking into it and hopefully maybe some people who listen will reach out to you. Yeah. I think, so, yeah, it sounds kind of like EMDR. Yes. Like a, yes. But like a shorter version. And if people are listening and have no clue what that is, you can look it up. It's a therapy technique for trauma, but it has to do with sensory and, type stuff. Yeah, so well, that, that has a lot to do with like the right left brain, right? Like that we can get right. out of our back of our brain by engaging in the right left brain. But um, yeah. so this is a different in that it accesses 
a different piece right. of the brain, but but yes, another yeah. piece of that, like healing, using the brain mm-hmm. to heal. Right. And kind of not through a traditional talk therapy method, which a lot of our kids really struggle with because trauma affects the part of the brain where we can access our emotions and where we think rationally. And so that's why a lot of the body and sensory stuff is really up and coming and effective um, because it can like help our kids without them knowing it's helping them, um, which is great if you can trick them. <laughs> love um, so that is really cool. That's that really is cool. cool. I'm really yeah, interested in that. I kind of want to do it. I know. Me I'm too. I'm like, ooh, I feel. And that's why I asked that question. I got escalated earlier. I asked that question because my daughter, like, I feel like that would have been helpful. See, this is why I love doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. Even though I, the, when her hard stuff is. That hard stuff that season is overish. Overish. I just think like, wow. If this can, if somebody who was in my position then, like right now, is in that position, and and just hears some of this stuff, how much hopeful they can be about their kids. Because you were googling. I was just everything like, possible on the internet. I was trying. <laughs> Everything. I mean, every different day. I mean, I was like, maybe this routine will work. Maybe this discipline strategy will work. And I, I had no idea. Yeah, you and know, that's what I love is being able to go. Okay, let's look at the puzzle pieces. What can your family afford in regard to time, in regard to monetary resources, in regard to space, in regard to right? Like, we can't create a sensory room for every family. It's really expensive. Some families do it though that I work with, right? So we're able to have those resources, but what can we do? And then what are the puzzle pieces? Like is it OT? Is it is it safe and sound protocol? Is that a doable thing for your family? Is it having a coach and being able to walk alongside and help with that and encourage them with that is exciting. So yeah, it's super cool that um I feel like just there's so many new things and and other things that we just weren't really, I mean, told about. Yeah. I mean, even Patricia. I mean, she's a therapist, like she said, and still, you know, it's just. Well, I'll throw this in there. I don't know if I've even said this on the podcast before, quite possibly. But, you know, in in typical therapist training, there's not a lot on foster care mm-hmm. and adoption I think there's a chapter in our family textbook mm-hmm. about it. And that really is mm-hmm. tragic because adoptees and foster kids are seven times more likely to pursue mental health services. Mm-hmm. So they are very active in mental health. And yet providers are, they're not bad people. They're just, they're just unaware. And the basic of, master's in clinical mental health isn't going to give you that big. Right. It's just, but you know, we have a whole class on career counseling. Explain that to me. Want to know how many career clients I've had? Zero. Um, Want to know how many people I've worked with in inpatient adolescent mental health that are adopted? Like 65% of them. So, you know, because I noticed that pattern, I sought that out, but I'm saying this, um, for for people listening to know, you know, whether you're a current parent or a prospective one, you really have to look for people that know this. Not perfectly. I don't know everything, but I at least know that I don't know everything and realize that it is different and that it can't be approached the same way. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people in the field do harm to adoptive and foster families, like kind of like what you were saying at church they do harm just because they are giving people advice that is just not going to work and it's probably going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, the studies also show that most people who are seeking these services for their kids are finding them to be ineffective. Mm -hmm. So then you think about what that teaches our kids. Like once they become adults, well, I've been in counseling my whole life and it never helped me. So why am I going to keep seeking that out? So then we have like, getting help for myself burnout mm. to where as adults, they're not seeking that because it hasn't delivered on its promise before. Mm-hmm. So I'm passionate about this. <laughs> it's okay that not everybody knows, but that's just something I want parents to be picky about who they put their kids in the room with 
and, you know, ask questions. If they don't know, it doesn't mean they're horrible. It just might not be the right fit because it is a different lens. You can use a lot of the adoption stuff on not adopted kids. I know you said that when we spoke, like TBRI has helped you. But because it's a developmental model, right? It's not a... Right. But a lot, a lot of the stuff I think is helpful because yeah. it's getting down to the really the core yes. of attachment and of connection. And that stuff is not going to hurt you. Right. But the vice versa, not taking it into account and just treating them the same as a child that grew inside of you, it just doesn't work. And you know, I've been given the advice. <laughs> I've been given the advice of, you know, what people. What a football coach told me one time when my son was refusing to come out on the field. Well, just pick him up and drag him out there. Oh, my mom would have whooped my tail if I would have refused, you know. And I'm like, yeah, like I can't do that. That's just not – first of all, my child's bigger than me. Yeah, like that's going to create an episode. Like that's not going to calm him down and get him in line. Like that is going to escalate. Um, to where like y'all are going to all be freaked out. Um, You really don't want me to do that. So that type of pressure, and you mentioned like it is really isolating when you feel like people are like, oh my gosh, this isn't that hard. Like just do this. And you're like, I can't, (laughs) but you don't know what else to do. It's really hard. You know, I, um, again, I'm not an adopted parent, so I haven't had to live with this. I've done respite, but I haven't had to live with the chronic of it, right, in my own home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think COVID should, like, look, always looking for that experience that helps me understand and have compassion for other people. COVID should help us to have compassion for what it feels like to be isolated. Right. Mm-hmm. Families yeah. I work with live like this all the time. They can't leave right. their house, right? They it's not okay to go to the grocery store because their child can't manage and no one's going to babysit their their kiddos, right? And for that season, they have to live like that. But there's hope in that because we can build a team around them and look at those puzzle pieces and go, what do you need? What what is the need behind the behavior and how can we help you build those things? Right, right, yeah. And you can find that team. There are people out there. I mean, you know, Christina is a part of my team. Yes. No, I know not everybody could be on my team, but you can find those people, and they're often other adoptive and foster parents. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, they're we, there. We talk about that all the time. So yeah. I always I like to ask this question often, um, especially people who like just seem more trained. Um, so for foster parents who right now are in the thick of it, and they're just feeling super overwhelmed. Where do you where, where do you suggest they start? Like, what are their starting points? What can they do realistically tonight or tomorrow to build to start building that support that team? Um, well, I think understanding, I think having an understanding of what TBRI is. So the great resource to begin building that one just for self, just for understanding that piece is mm-hmm. YouTube has. The Karen yeah. Purvis Institute has so many free videos, right? Like, that's a great resource. Um, and they're short, right? They're three minutes. So they have these video libraries, and I provide those to people I help with. But I often say, who wants to watch three hours of another person's trauma? <laughs> like, that's way too much. <laughs> but YouTube, five minutes, okay, that's tolerable. <laughs> we can right. find five minutes. So I think that building your knowledge and what the resources are, um, there's – if you like to read, I think that the trauma books are right, like pulling those things in that you can do. Now, I think that finding those, um, really thinking what is your need, my need is to go to the grocery store alone and figuring out how, who can you build up around you to get that small little thing done mm-hmm. so that you're not trapped, so that you're not isolated. Because mm-hmm. the truth is, is like, again, if we look back at typical people right now, but stopping people from going to the grocery store, to church, or to living life is the mask. Like, it's too much hard. It's too hard to navigate the grocery store because it feels like a foreign country, at least where I am. Um, and so, you know, that becomes, life still isn't normal, and so it becomes hard to navigate. It feels like a foreign country. And so I think that that's what stops us, is we don't even know what it is that we need. So figuring out what that need is and 
building up a team around us that we can, and meeting our own need, right? Meeting up our own piece before we try and figure out what the, our child Mm -hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. Right. And starting small. Yeah. Because we talk about this a lot. Like people yeah. ask you what can I do to help you? And you're like, I don't even know. Like, I feel like a walking dead person. Right. So just being able to say, yeah, I need to go to the grocery store alone. That seems tackleable. So just starting with something small and yes. saying, yeah, who can I talk to? What can I do? Because just some building on some success makes mm-hmm. you feel like, okay, I can take another step. Right. But if you just feel like everything is a loss and there's no end in sight, it makes it very hard yeah. to, and I have been there. I have been in that feeling. Um, so I think, and I think, honestly, I think most of us get there at some point. I think it's just kind of part of it because, you know, you don't know until you're in it and you yeah. kind of think you got it until one day you're like, I don't have this Um, and then adapt. So, but I think that is a really good advice. Like just to start small, identify your own needs, express them. And if you really don't have anybody, like, so, I mean, I've heard people say, I really don't have anybody. Like I don't have any family. I like, they truly are alone. It's like, okay, we got to fix that. Yeah. Support groups are and those types of things because I mean it's virtual now. Yeah. Anyways, right? Mm-hmm. I have an right. eight o'clock adoption group at eight p.m. I'm normally in people's bedrooms on Monday nights so, because <laughs> they're on their computers after their kids have gone to bed. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I think just even Googling on Facebook, like there's so many groups now, like I'm thankful. I'm in a group for everything in my life, every hobby, every side hustle, every interest, just everything. Uh, that's why really I have Facebook. But um, yeah, I mean, if you just Google like foster adoption around me or group yeah. or, you know, one of the major cities around yeah. you, there'll be something. And if you're invested um, enough, you can build those relationships right. that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm thankful for that too. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah. Thanks guys. Is there anything else that you wish you would have said or feel like you need to say before we hop off? That's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I really appreciate the conversation. Um, Learning something new and also just hearing your story and your perspective. Um, We always say story is the best teacher. Yes. So thank you for, sharing yours and thank you for being honest about the hard stuff and not jumping out of the game, staying in the game. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, you are really being a blessing to mm-hmm. a lot of people in the trenches. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate that. If you liked today's episode or any of our episodes, we'd really appreciate a kind review on Apple Podcasts or just to share with your friends who you think might be interested in hearing the stories that are told. 